It's very good to see everyone who's here this morning. And I just got to admit, my mind is racing. I thought, okay, I'll speed things up, and we won't even do a reading so I can get right into it. And here we are, we're already 11.30. I thought that would buy me five minutes. And then the service itself has inspired me. It's interesting, for those of you that know this month, we're looking at some of the songs we sing and considering them as they apply to God's Word. And so we're taking these songs and looking at the lyrics, and it was interesting that the song Money wrote this morning was the, the other side of that coin. It was a song that was inspired by a sermon, O Lamb of God. Brother Wayne McCamey preached and caused the writer to decide to write a song about it. It works both ways, absolutely. But you know, as I was also sitting there, I thought, I wanted to be sure and thank those who have already taught so far. I'll make a little confession of sorts, I guess. I've always been a little bit hesitant about preaching on songs because I've always been afraid it would put too much emphasis on the writer and their lyrics and not enough on the word. And the teachers have done the very opposite, and I thank you for that. I believe that's important. You know, Jesus, as he talked in John chapter 4 and 23, he says, God is a spirit. And those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The fact is, Jesus pointed out, people need both. We don't want to have a truth worship that is void of spirit, and we don't want to have a spirit worship that's void of truth. Even when we sing. So much, even when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you might recall that really has a lot to do with miraculous gifts and speaking in tongues, and which is the greatest gift, and, and all of those things about miracles. And you know in the midst of that, he says, what's the conclusion? He says, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. What has happened this time, as we've looked at these songs in my mind, it, it has reinforced to me this very principle. Because quite frankly, I'm kind of, a, in some ways I'm not emotional, and in other ways I get real emotional. I don't, I don't remember the few, first funeral I went to, and it feels like as a child growing up, I went to funerals. That's what people did. My parents mourned with those who mourned, and we went to a lot of funerals. And I could pretty much sit through those funerals and be unimpacted, in a whole lot of ways, not that I didn't care, but I wasn't emotionally engaged in that service until I began to sing. And to this day, I can be singing in the funeral of somebody I don't even personally know and get overwhelmed with emotion. Singing brings out, it creates even with music alone, can create passion and emotion. And the reason it's important that we sing with an understanding or we worship in not only spirit but truth is because that emotion can be channeled also in the wrong way. It happens in music all the time. Many writers have boasted of their ability to turn and sway people based on the music they write despite the lyric. And if you question that, just go into some of these music studies classes that are at some of these universities and you'll find out how this has been used throughout history. 
And so as we consider the music that we sing, the worship that we offer to our God, and the emotion and the, the impact that makes upon us inside, it is so important that we sing and we understand what we're singing and that what we understand is true. God deserves that. And I'll tell you right now, you deserve it and I deserve it. Because God created it for us to take advantage of. It would be on His behalf. And yet, as so many times happens with gifts we maybe give to others, we find that we feel we ourselves were the most blessed or the most that got the most out of it, even though we gave the gift to them. In my mind, this is the way I feel about our singing worship at times. Indeed, it's designed to give praise and honor to God, and, to, and yet I feel like it blesses me. And Whatever we do, we want it to be in truth. The song we're going to consider this morning is in Christ alone. If you want at any point to follow along, it's number five in the, the blue binder. I tell you that in case you want to follow along because most of the time with scriptures, I'm able to cut and paste them and just put them up here for you to read. I don't do any typing because my typing skills wane sorely. I didn't, couldn't find this song already typed out for me to cut and paste, so you're relying on my abilities. This morning, I keep finding errors, and so I'll just apologize in advance. In Christ alone. As I researched this, everybody was researching the writers. I thought, okay, I've got to come with a great story of emotion and passion that was at the, at the root of this song, and, but I didn't find that. I found that this was the first song these two people wrote together. They, they teamed up wanting to write lyrics. One was better at music, one was better at lyrics. They teamed up, they wanted to write a song, and this is their first shot. You know what their goal was in this song? This is the coolest part about it. They wanted to write a song that would describe the gospel. If you only had one chance... To get to people with the song they heard, how would you tell them the most you possibly could? That was kind of what I took out of what they wrote about the inspiration for this song. And then the title they gave was In Christ Alone. When I read that title, I couldn't help but think of John chapter 14 and verse 6 where it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is indeed the message of the song. It's not just the title. Sometimes, as Edwin pointed out to me this morning, my titles don't always match where he thinks I'm going. But in this case, the title matches. And today, I suppose if there's one thing that we need to make sure we understand and that the world understands, is that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Our hope is in Him alone. With that in mind, I would like to go through the lyrics. I'm going to turn this on. The beginning of this says, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. The psalmist said, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We learn from John chapter 1 beginning in verse 1, that Jesus said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
You keep reading down through that and you'll get to verse 14 and it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He wasn't just great. He wasn't just loving. He wasn't just full of grace, but He was full of truth. You could not find any deceit, any lie, anything that wasn't true in the life of Jesus Christ. As our light that the psalmist referred to, and the word being that light, we find later on, and this is a whole study in itself, that Jesus is the word. Jesus is the light. And so when the writer says, in all my hope I find him, because he is the light, he's everywhere I get strength, and he is even my song. And that's what this song will be about. This cornerstone, the lyrics go on to say, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. You know, Peter described Jesus as a cornerstone. Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone basically is the part of the building that they would use at that time that set, and it's, it set the whole pattern for the building. It set its location. It set where it was square to. It set its orientation to everything around it was within the cornerstone. It was the key to the foundation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's also that solid ground through which everything else will be built. This is described by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, these words that are a lamp to my feet, and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. That's the verse I think about when I think about this, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest storm. You say, Greg, you missed the drought. <laughs> I did. I missed that in this song every time we've sung it till I prepared this lesson. We in California, we know a lot about drought. We've been in it. We've suffered the, every time you look at your water bill now. I heard somebody saying the other day, their water bill is more than their electric bill and their some other bill combined. I think it was gas and electric. Water is precious. And it's not just in California. I heard a Californian telling that somebody, and, and maybe it was back in Alabama. I can't remember. And they said, well, it's the same for me. And this was somebody that's back east in a place I thought they just had all kinds of water. Water's precious. Jesus said this song talks about even through the fiercest drought, I'm okay in Jesus. You know, the scriptures talk about drought. The Bible says in Isaiah 58 and verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. It doesn't matter what life throws at us today. Jesus Christ is that answer. It's in this song. It's throughout the scripture. Whether it is a storm that is literally, we just don't know if we can stand against, or whether it's the misery and the loneliness of drought. 
Because that's what drought represents in my mind. It's like, it just doesn't come, and it just doesn't come. And you wait, and you pray, but it doesn't come. That's a lot different than just feeling like you're being pelted constantly, right? And yet it's just as miserable. And in some people's mind, it's worse. Some people feel like at least with the storm, there's something to fight against. With the drought, you're just waiting, and there's nothing you can do. And some of you know what that's like spiritually. It's just like there's nothing. And through God's word, he says, that's not true. You're not left with nothing. In the midst of the drought of life or whatever you're going through, you can be like a well-watered garden. Everything can flourish. But that's only going to happen through Jesus Christ. Consequently, the, the lyrics of the song go on to say, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and when strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I will stand. When you can face a storm and when you can face a drought and know that it's going to be all right and that everything's going to be okay because you're on the right foundation, he says the depth, the height of love, the depth, the magnitude, the volume of peace that you can get when your fears are stilled and when you stop fighting against it, that striving, it ceases. It's not talking about death, it's talking about just peace of mind. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How did he say we're going to avoid being anxious and worrying about stuff? He says we're going to be anxious for nothing, but we are going to turn to prayer and supplication. We are going to pray to God, we are going to go to God and ask and beg, and we're pretty good at that part, but where Greg Branch can fail when I get really worried about something and overwhelmed by anxiety about something is I stop being thankful, and that's exactly what Paul told the Philippians. He says, pray what you need to pray for, beg for what you need to beg for, but before you finish, thank him. You're like, what am I going to thank him for? I don't know, but I know you have something to be thankful for. I guess yesterday was the first time I've been to a funeral, buried somebody in my own age group. Matt Banks. I don't know how many of you know Banks Glass up in Jamestown. Banks family is, they're into a lot. Financial and glass, and they've done commercial and residential glass for generations, I guess. Matt Banks, the class of 1980, Sonora High School. Collapsed Monday night, massive heart attack, killed him instantly. You see him, you'd say, man, you played football, didn't you? And you still stay in shape. He's just one of those guys. Maybe he's a little overweight, but if you're 53, 54, I guess you're entitled to a little. He's a grandpa. Three little granddaughters, none of them hardly big enough to barely walk, and a grandson that was born Tuesday that he never got to see. 
If nothing else today, I am thankful for God that I have the breath of life. And if everything in my life other than that was falling apart, I would know that I could have hope. And maybe from here forward, something can change for good. Because here, in the love of Christ, I stand. If I can be thankful for that, let alone... I've got lots more to thank God about. So even in the midst of whatever is bothering me, whatever's bothering you, thank God. It may require some thinking, but do you reckon that's God's whole point? We can get in that rut and not get out. You know, I want to say this about ruts. Sorry. Ruts are not always bad. In Oklahoma, there were some farm roads that you were grateful for the ruts because they kept you out of the ditch. And if you could keep your momentum, it would get you through the bad spot. Ruts were only bad when you were stuck and you couldn't get out of them. Because sometimes it rains and it gets muddy and it gets slick. And sometimes those ruts are what keep you through, but you keep pushing you may think I'm in a rut. I tell you, it could be worse. You could already be in the ditch. Enough said about that. And the peace of God, when we have that attitude, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. I want you to know he did not say it's going to heal your heart and your mind. And that is important because I know good Christian people who really care and have prayed to God about some things that are on your heart and you're really discouraged because you don't think it's fixed and you still are worked up about it. And they say, at least why am I still worked up about it? He didn't say it was going to leave. He says he would guard your heart and minds. He'll take care of you. You're going to make it. And in case you're saying, yes, but it's just the pain, I wish it'd go away. I'm going to tell you from Greg Branch's perspective, and maybe somebody else has one like this, emotion for me comes when I least expect it, and I really can't control it once it does too well, but it doesn't come near enough, especially when it comes to my dad. I loved him. I'm, people, I still meet people, and they say, they call me Sammy back in Alabama, Sam Branch, and I'm like, oh, I'm his son. Oh, I knew that, but they just saw him, little Sammy. I can't always cry and be emotional when I wish I could when I think about not having him anymore. I miss that emotion. It makes me feel guilty like I don't love him enough, like I didn't care enough. I know that's not true. But when that emotion finally comes and I can cry again, I actually am thankful for that. Because it reminds me that it is in there. Today, just because you don't have the peace that you wish you had, it's not all bad either. What God says is you pray and you have your supplications, you be thankful, and the peace of God that passes understanding is going to guard your heart and mind through Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, the next verse says, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, Luke said, the angel said unto him, do not be afraid, for behold, I will bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. 
the picture of God in the flesh starting out as a baby. Full, complete God he would be to us. He starts as a helpless baby. Can't go anywhere on his own. Has to be carried everywhere. That is Jesus Christ. When we hold our babies and they can't do anything, remember at some point, Jesus started just like that. Fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Yes, this little baby, this gift of love, this perfect gift, will wound up being scorned by the very people he came to save. The soldiers, the governor took Jesus to the praetorium, gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spat on him. They took the reed and they struck him on a head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Within these few words of lyrics by the writer, as they tried to talk about the life of Christ, they talk about the baby all the way to his crucifixion. And what he was dying for was the very people that were killing him. On the day of Pentecost, the, the beginning of the church, you think you've done something so bad God will never forgive you? Oh, you need to visit the day of Pentecost. The very people who did this were given the opportunity to repent and become joint heirs with Jesus. Our God loves you. He loves everybody. They scorned him, and yet there was the opportunity. Despite this, he came to save them. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I want you to know today that the wrath was not upon Jesus. There was wrath that was satisfied that day. Colossians 3 and verse 5 there. Five says, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. God's wrath is going to be on people that do this. Matter of fact, you used to do this. When you walked that way, someone says, I did some of that. That's why I'm having trouble forgiving myself over some of that. He says to them in the church in Colossae, you used to do this. God's wrath will be on people that continue to. You used to be like that. Let's consider John's connection to this. The Bible says, he who believes in the Son of God has everlasting life. But he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. The fact is, we learn from this and a host of other scriptures I'm not going into right now, that the wrath of God is going to be on people who disobey and will not walk according to faith. But when you come in faith, accepting Jesus Christ and his plan, his will for your life, that wrath is covered, it was covered on the cross. The wrath of God that required a sacrifice because of that sin, Jesus Christ became that atoning sacrifice. And in that, God's wrath for those sins was satisfied. 
He was not angry with Jesus. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He, that was His beloved Son in whom He was well pleased. The wrath was upon the sin that you and I deserved. For every sin on Him was laid. John 1 verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. John 2 and 1. My little children, I write to you so you don't sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is himself the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's not our own little sin-free club. It's for everyone that Jesus did this. This is going to come important later, but we'll keep moving. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Now, a lot could be said about this, but I want you to know Romans chapter 6 says, don't you know, as as many of us that were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? It's in the death of Christ that we live. How do we participate in that? Through baptism. And if I don't do it full enough later, I apologize because that is our connection to this saving grace. We are buried with him through baptism into death just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. As sure as Jesus rose out of the grave to walk, we rise to walk in a new life. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have not been baptized into Christ today, I want to beg you to do that. Jesus did it. And he did it, he said, to fulfill all righteousness. And he was sinless. Who are we to not want to do that? There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Now for time's sake, I'm just going to tell you, Matthew 27, 57 through 61, Jesus Christ was buried after he died on the cross. The very light of the world was slain by darkness. Then bursting forth, in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8. He died, but yes, he rose. That's why we read in Romans 6 that just like he rose, we too can know then that we can rise. Verse 2 says, and I like this one, didn't want to miss it. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And he said, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its, lost its grip on me. For I am his, he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. It was Jesus' sacrifice, his willingness to die, that purchased me out of the sin debt I owed. That was the death. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus stands there at the right hand of God. He sits there, he's described. Acts 20 and 7 says, Therefore take heed to yourselves, to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church of God. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Spirit, right? We know that from scriptures. How do we know which God's here? He says it's the one who purchased it with his own blood. The church of God, which he purchased with his blood, that's Jesus Christ. God the Son. 
I know I'm flying through, but if we need more, put it in the, in the, in the back. Say, I'd like to hear more on this. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Because of this salvation plan, because of this opportunity, I don't have to walk around with guilt. I don't have to be afraid in life. That's the power of Christ. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, Paul told Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but now has been refilled by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So much can be said about this, but one thing I think about as I think of those scriptures and this whole no fear in death. You remember what Paul said? He said, we're not going to sorrow like those who have no hope. Did he say we're not going to sorrow? He says, no, we're not going to sorrow like they do. We're going to have sorrow. Jesus wept when Lazarus died, and Jesus knew he was about to raise him. Death and loss is emotional. But we don't sorrow like people that sorrow without hope. At least we have hope. Because he has abolished death and brought immortality to light. We can get through this. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Now, this is one of those I really think it's important to understand spirit and truth. And I'll blow through this as fast as I can, but... This is the one part of this song that I think we can, there's multiple meanings. And a matter of fact, if you use the primary definition for this word destiny that you find in, 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 in dictionaries, it's false doctrine. And I'll, I want to explain to you why, so it's important. Now, there are secondary definitions, and we talk a lot about poetic license for people that write music, and there's a lot of examples like this. And I just want to make sure that when we sing this, when we talk about the destiny that's commanded by Jesus, we understand it in light of truth and scripture. Destiny is a word, if you just look up an English dictionary, because that's what they wrote our songbook, it's the seemingly inevitable or necessary succession of events. That's definition number one. Number two, it's one's fate. Number three, that which determines events, set of supernatural agency or necessity. So I go to fate, to determine the outcome of events before they occur. The third definition of fate is one's final outcome. Now, if when you sing this song from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, and you mean that Jesus, from the day I was born, he was going to determine my final outcome, then that is absolutely scriptural, and I'll work talk, we'll prove that. But if when you sing this, you say from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus determined the outcome of my events before they ever happened, and they just set them in order and there's nothing I can do about it, then that's not right. And there's a lot of reasons you say, well, I have always thought that. Now I'm kind of worried. Oh, no, don't worry. This, you're going to like this message better. Trust me. And that's why I think it's important that we cover about it. 
In this song, Jesus commands, now I'm going to tell you why I think we can sing it, because this phrase, Jesus commands, is an active verb. I mean, think about it. It's something ongoing. Jesus commands. He's something he's doing. It's not past tense. If it said, Jesus commanded my destiny, then that would imply that you believed in some predestination that meant before you were ever born or at the moment you were conceived, everything was just planned and you didn't have a choice in it. But because it says it's active and ongoing, I believe it's implying the final outcome. And that's ex absolutely true. When we have, now I believe it conception, but if you want to make it the first breath outside the womb, you make it what you want to make it, I guess. But the Bible's clear, Jesus, or God, acknowledges and participates in life within the womb. From very inception, I believe, Jesus commands the destiny, the destination, the final outcome of everybody to the point they die. And it can change. I know that because the Apostle Paul says that he beats his body, keeps it, brings it into subjection, lest at any time when he has preached to others, he himself should become a castaway. He wasn't already a castaway. He was worried about becoming one. So he wasn't set. There was choice he had, and we want to talk about. The reason it matters is because of a false doctrine called Calvinism. Calvinism basically has five tenets, and, and Brian spoke on them within the, not too long ago, so I'm not going to go too deep, but TULIP is kind of the acronym, total depravity. What that means is mankind, there's nothing we can do, could ever do, couldn't do, it's just we're totally depraved. We're sinful, even if we wanted to believe we couldn't, if God didn't let us and make us and appoint us to that, because we are totally depraved. It believes in unconditional election. That means that, it, that people will be elected or saved unconditionally regardless of what they believe, what they don't believe. What, God just picks you like it's just like, like that. Or if he looks and says, oh, I'll take you. I'll take you. And you. That's unconditional election. It has nothing to do with what you believe. It has everything to do with just God's going to just decide. That's a principle of unconditional. Limited atonement. That means the other side of the coin. When God does unconditionally select some people, uh, that limits the rest. That's limited atonement. It means some people are lost and there's nothing they could do to be saved. Yeah, there's people that believe that. Matter of fact, most of the religious world that accepts Calvinism accepts that and they don't even realize it. Irresistible grace. This kind of goes back with unconditional election. You're like, well, what if somebody don't want to be saved and God's just going to make them saved? Oh, it's irresistible. They, once he decides, he just puts the Holy Spirit in them, and they can't resist. That's irresistible grace. And perseverance of the saints. Now, I'm going to time out. Lest you think I'm making this up and so that you can, so I can make some of the people, Calvinists look bad, this is off their website. I'm not going to use the scriptures. They try to point it out because, anyway, we're going to cover some of them. Anyway, I didn't make this up, and it's not my twist on it. Perseverance of the saints. That means the saints, whoever's saved, they're going to make it through somehow, no matter what, regardless. We call that predestination or once saved, always saved. What's wrong with that doctrine? And that's implied by this concept of destiny. That's why we're even on this subject. If limited atonement is true, then the word of God would not be for everybody in the world, right? It's only for people to be saved. Yet the word of God says of itself that it is for everybody in the world. Matthew 28 and 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. First of all, it is for every nation. Something that's only for a select few that they picked out wouldn't be for every nation. Second of all, predestination and unconditional election. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined. I chose this passage because some people say, oh, we don't believe in predestination. I do. We better. <laughs> it's in there. But what does it mean? Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Mm, Greg, it sounds like he's saying what you said they're saying. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The apostle that wrote says, we who first trusted him. They had a personal choice in this. It didn't just happen. They trusted and they would be to the praise of his glory. But it doesn't stop there. It gets better. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. If this was predestination that was unconditional and really just happened and it was irresistible, you couldn't do anything, why does he point out it came as a result of you hearing the word of God? It says it came as a result of them, the apostles. Remember, they were miraculously endowed with it, right? They couldn't read it in a book. They were getting it for the first time. So they had to trust it. That's why, in my mind, Paul said, I keep myself in the subjection lest at any time, once I've told this to somebody else, I don't do it. I got to do it too, so I'm not a castaway. He couldn't read it. He didn't get to hear it. He was endowed with it. Everybody else trusted it after they heard it from the apostles. And that's how they were predestined. What do I believe about this predestination? I believe that God, before the foundation of the world, set that he knew how he was going to save man. And that anybody who would believe this, who would follow his will, would be born again and was predestined to be saved. Not that he set your whole life in order. Quite frankly, if that's what it means, you don't need the rest of the Bible. You just need a page that says, God's already decided, good luck. But that's not what the Bible does. It, it testifies to us. It gives us a chance to believe. It gives us a chance to mess up and fix it through God's grace. An awesome message it is. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That is not unconditional election. There are conditions, and it's based upon your choice. You said, Greg, now I'm scared again. Let's talk about this destiny. John says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You say, Greg, I... I still, I make mistakes. That's all right. Jesus' blood still cleanses you. It's not a one-time gift, and then if you mess it up again, you lost it. No, it will continue to cleanse. And that's based upon, oh. One thing we learn in 1 John 1 and 7, we know that we can be walking in the light and still make mistakes or sin. Yet the blood of Christ will cleanse us. That's a very complicated statement, and yet it says it. How does it do that? Does it mean God doesn't hold us accountable? No. Here's how I believe it happens, and fortunately, I got a pretty good emphasis to get you to believe it too, because two verses later in verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So I can be a faithful Christian and I can sin and I'm not like, poof, lightning strike, wasted on you, Greg. No, because when I sin, I'm going to realize that. I'm going to confess it. And he is faithful and just, forgives us and cleanses us of everything. Now, if I want to continue in that sin, that blood of Christ does not continually cleanse me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says, that is showing despite to the spirit of God's grace. And under the Moses law, people died. How bad, how much worse do you think it's going to be who people that trod underfoot the Son of God like that? No, he does not tell us, go ahead and do your thing and then it's all going to work out. He says, when you sin, you don't have to worry about your, your head is straight to hell now. Jesus' blood is there because you're going to, when you sin, you're going to know it and you're going to confess it. As the apostles told Simon, pray to God that the sin of your heart's forgiven you and he absolutely will. That is how you can have this confidence. It's not this destiny that you couldn't control and it was whatever. It's choices you're making based on the grace God extended to us that we didn't deserve, that we did nothing to merit. Therefore, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Because I have that choice. Nothing anybody can do to me. Where have we been in this song? We've been through drought. We've been through storm. We've been through persecution, perhaps. We've even been subject to our own sinfulness. But there's nothing anybody else can do. No power that Satan has in all the power of hell that can pluck you out of the hand of God. There is no scheme that people at school or people at work or, God forbid, people at church can plot against you that can cause you to lose your salvation. It's between you and God. And he has absolutely done everything he possibly can to provide you a red carpet path into the family. We find this in scriptures, Romans chapter 8. I am persuaded neither death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, nor anything still yet to come. You're like, Greg, what if we do really have an Armageddon? So, now that may be to say it could be bad, but it's not going to stop anything that God has to do or your salvation nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, the final verse of the song, till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Today, if you're not standing in the power of Christ, I hope you've seen through the lyrics of this song as they are supported and proven to be true from the word of God that it's time that you stood in this power because it's an awesome power meant for you. Someone says, are we going to sing it now? Brian's going to do that. Don't worry. At the end of services. But right now you have the opportunity to respond. If you're not a Christian and you need to become one, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus, Mark 16 and 16. If you're willing to change your life, that means whatever God wants you to do, Luke 13 and 3. If you're willing to confess him before men and be baptized, we'd love to assist in that. If you're a Christian and you examine yourself as we prepare to meet around the Lord's table, you can pray to God. He will forgive you. But if you desire the prayers of the church and to confess your faults, according to James 5, 16, 17, then we'll pray with you. We'll pray for you. I want to be their class while we stand and while we sing. In Christ.
for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.